Climate change is a global phenomenon. But we experience it where we live, in our homes and workplaces, streets and parks, and in our bodies, wherever they're found. For 4.2 million people, that's in Montreal. Welcome to Zone Rouge, CJLO's series about the impact of the climate crisis on Montreal. Montreal has made ambitious targets on climate change. And people in Montreal have made headlines around the world by gathering in the hundreds of thousands to demand action on climate change. But the city is going to be changed by the climate, too. Zombie plant, and it's been spotted here in Montreal. It's an invasive species that grows in lakes and ponds, including one of the city's major parks. This Kelly week on the series, biodiversity. The fight to save it's ash trees in the Montreal West Island is heating up. The emerald ash borer has been destroying ash trees. Across so it's all about the the ones that can thrive and find opportunity, like the raccoon, like the coyote, like the fox, um, that that are just taking advantage of whatever shift has occurred because of our sprawl. Montreal is recognized as a leader in urban biodiversity, and Montreal's mayor, Valérie Plante, was named a global ambassador for local biodiversity in 2019. But the city faces threats to its biodiversity too, from habitat destruction, from invasive species, and from the changing climate itself. I think it's a common situation that you find in different communities like ours, where we end up having to be more responsible for our environment because no one else did it. So it actually reduces our ability to be able to be flexible in how we use our community, or how we you know, live in our community, because we're forced to, we have a responsibility to protect these wetlands. We know that we need to replant all the ash that we've lost, and we also know we want to improve the amount of tree cover. But how do we do that in a way that's going to be uh, resilient to the types of pressures that those canopies are going to be under um, in 20 or 50 years from now? Because they're not the same ones that we have today. This series was recorded on unceded Indigenous land, where the Ganyagahaga Nation is recognized as the custodians of the lands and waters, and in Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. I'm Maura Donovan. Let's get to it. Montreal is a city built around water. This has implications for phenomena like flooding, but it also has huge consequences for biodiversity, especially in places like Ganawage. If you actually fly over Montreal uh, and you look out the plane, Ganawage will be the green dot on the ground. This is Dwayne Stacy, a teacher of archaeology and history at the Ganawage Survival School. As far as um, the Mohawk people, we had villages along the river because this would have been the northern edge of our territory, Montreal. And so this area was always in use. There's there's different 
um, archaeological sites that date back thousand years, all, all different years, all along the waterway. I don't. I guess all of those villages uh, gave us the basis for how we think around here and how we act towards the river and the waters around here. And and also it's like um, if you look at traditional way of life, the river was really important. So you know it's that's why there's like a respect for the river and the wildlife along the river and. It's like protected as much as possible. This is particularly important because Ganawage is home to a habitat that's critical for biodiversity, but which has almost disappeared in the area around Montreal. We are home to um, a lot of wetlands, uh, some of the last remaining wetlands in this region. So it's critical um, habitat for many species. So we're very cognizant of that. Hi, I'm Kaylee Amarqui. I'm the General Manager of Environment Protection for the Gunawaga Environment Protection Office. It's hard to overstate the value of wetlands, home to 40% of the species at risk in Quebec. Yet despite the importance of wetlands, they're disappearing faster than any other ecosystem type on a global scale. That pattern holds true in Montreal too, where 83% of the city's wetlands were lost by 1976. And fights to save those habitats are ongoing, including in the Technopark development, site of one of the city's last wetlands. Ganawage is home to much of the remainder, a fact in line with a 2019 UBC study that found that biodiversity was highest on land managed by Indigenous communities. But according to Marquis, that also comes with a complicated set of responsibilities. I think it's a common situation that you find in different communities like ours where we end up having to be more responsible for our environment because no one else did it. So it actually reduces our ability to be able to be flexible in how we use our community or how we, you know, live in our community because we're forced to, we're not forced to, but you know, we have a responsibility to protect these wetlands. And I think that is another part of the education piece in our community because only 15% of our community is commonly held. The rest of it is privately held by, by people in the community. But it does, it does raise the stakes for us to be able to make sure that people understand what it is they're holding. They're holding the future generations of those species. They're holding on to they're extending the lifespan of that species, of that plant, of that ecosystem. It's important for us to communicate that, the weight of that responsibility, while also acknowledging that, yes, you need to live somewhere. Yes, your children need to live somewhere. But how can we address both? You know, the, the time and the space is coming where we can't address both in the same space. And really, what pressure is that placing on future generations? Marquis says on top of this, Ganawage has already lost a lot of land and is hemmed in by other communities, limiting the room to expand. It's already creating a stress on future generations to say you have even less space to, to do anything with. Ganawage's land base has been shrinking for centuries. But some of this is more recent and dates back to the mid-1950s, when industrial development was booming along the St. Lawrence. Starting in 1954, the Canadian and American governments built a seaway to improve shipping in the river. 
expropriating more than 1,200 acres of land in Ganawage in the process. The seaway itself destroyed wetlands and impacted biodiversity along the St. Lawrence. But in Ganawage, it also cut off much of the community's access to the water. My name is Lily Yerdunhiwagundir. Um, I'm Bear Clan. I'm from Ganawage, Quebec. I'm currently a student in the individualized program uh, for the Master's of Arts uh, at Concordia University. When I was pursuing my studies at Carleton University for my undergrad, I was taking a class and in for one of the final assignments, uh, we had to look at um, one Indigenous community um, and an aspect of in, environmental racism. For me, uh, because I'm from Ganawage and, and the St. Lawrence Seaway um, was imposed on my community um, in the past, it, it, it was really interesting. Um, so I wanted to get to the root of of how and why. So I started looking into the Library and Archives um, Canada on their online database and eventually through looking through the Privy Council office uh, minutes, I found actual documents where in their meetings they were talking about how they would go about expropriating the land. Um, I actually have them with me because I <laughs> because I was just so shocked that I had to um, bring them up again. And some of the language that they used, you know, they, they knew it wasn't uh, morally right and they didn't really care. So basically, the Department of Transport and the Indian Affairs branch knew that it was taken forcibly from our community even in the cabinet uh, discussions between ministers, they were concerned about the legal soundness. They said, okay, never mind, let's just change the St. Lawrence Seaway Authority Act. We'll make them a corporation. So under Section 35 of the Indian Act, we can take their land without consent because they're just natives. In 2008, the Mohawk Council of Ganawage filed a claim alleging that Canada had breached its legal and fiduciary obligations with this expropriation process. That claim has not been settled. Deer says in a draft report prepared for the council, it's also clear that the seaway was initially going to go elsewhere. And in here, uh, if I can just read one passage, um, it says, initially authorities had considered building the seaway canal on the north side of the river adjacent to the island of Montreal. And here... It says no documentation has been located that reflects consideration of the impact on contemporary or future land use on the Kahnawaga Reserve, which is now presently known as Kahnawaga. Kahnawaga, um, in my limited understanding of the language, um, means at the rapids or by the rapids and and that was significant because it it really speaks to um our geographical location and how we relate to place right that name was was chosen for this community because of where where it's situated right with the saint lawrence um river now it's it's more difficult to access that right i'm sure you read in in the paper the um I reproduced a poem by my godfather. (laughs) 
and it's called Reflections on the St. Lawrence Seaway by Peter Blue Cloud. His kanyakaha name was Aruyawarade. Ships that pass in the night do so often before my front window, calling out prehistoric challenges just before their lighted bodies pass through one another, like mirages meeting in a dream, leaving wakes of undulations, dark synthetic storms which tossed violent waves along the seawall. These man-made tempests are fictions written by machines, as are the sea walls gouged out of naked granite and slate to fashion the stagnant sewer of zebra muscle beds and other filthy matter brought to us by foreign thought and deed to lend temporary wealth to those who dare not dream of possible tomorrows, man resting only to feast upon the resources of this earth, then quickly moving on, seeking further tribute from any of the floating plates of land upon this planet once held sacred, envisioning riches even there among the very stars as they plunder and rape their only source of sustenance and possible peace. They would all grow rich today and fatten egos and purses at the expense of their own children but tomorrow will not take care of itself, as once was thought. And when men finally disappear, taking countless species with them, the Earth will continue her trip among the galaxies, perhaps wondering just what went wrong with that short-lived species, man, which threw away the gift of life. invasive zebra mussels, a river turned into a stagnant sewer. These are symptoms of the development that leads to habitat destruction, the main driver of biodiversity loss worldwide. That development also disproportionately limits the access of people of color and indigenous communities to nature, while forcing them to make tough decisions about protecting the sites of biodiversity they have left. And it favors certain species more than others, with implications for urban biodiversity. To investigate that, we can jump to the other side of the river. It's a November evening in Hoshalega Maisonov. They're dusk and dawn creatures. Um, they can come out at night, but generally speaking, we're talking early and late. On Rue de Contrecoeur, the street is empty, except for a small gray shape. Urbanization is increasing rapidly around the world. By 2030, almost 300,000 kilometers of natural habitat are expected to be converted to urban land. And cities tend to be built in areas of high biodiversity. In this, Montreal is no exception. And these sprawling urban environments aren't equally good for all species. Case in point, the coyote. So they, they really thrive in the urban environment and urban sprawl over the last couple of decades has made it so that their populations are increasing compared to most other animals that are in our general vicinity. This is Elizabeth Landry. I'm a biologist at the Eco Museum Zoo in Saint Anne de Bellevue. Coyotes have been in Montreal since the 1970s, 
But in recent years, some coyotes in Montreal have become so used to people that the city has adopted a strategy to coexist with coyotes, including educating the public on how to avoid conflict. For instance, a coyote that's been fed by a human because he was too cute to ignore, um, over time will start to expect certain things of humans. And that's when you, you hear coyotes getting really, really close because they're trying to say, hey, where's my food? This last guy gave me food. What, why aren't you doing giving me the same courtesy? So as long as we keep them at bay, as long as we keep their, their natural fear of humans, there really isn't a concern. This coyote has crept in from Rivière des Prairies, across the Parc Nature de Bois d'Anjou, and through the Carlos del Cantera Park. But it hasn't yet become habituated to people and our food, so it runs away as soon as it sees us in the direction of the railway tracks. They thrive on that that in between. Uh, so um, just the, the beginning parts of the forest, they like train lines, they like ditches, they like um, little rocky nooks that they can find, but they, they do travel good distances as well. Other species, like deer and the brown snake, also use railway tracks to move around. In cities, though, coyotes benefit from being at the top of the heap. What's opportunistic of them is that uh, if you think of the island of Montreal or the, the greater Montreal region in general, there aren't any other predators. There are maybe foxes, but he's got very little competition when it comes to that. Whereas if he goes out into those other ranges, he's got wolves to contend with, uh, which can become competitors. They can also become predators. Um, so realistically, it's ideal for him because he gets to just be on the fringe uh, and and benefit from the fact that we also leave food residue behind. Uh, we let our cats out at night. Um, so they, they're just opportunistic and they've been lucky enough to, to benefit from our sprawl. We'll explore sprawl further in the next episode. For now, know that even as this visible coyote runs away, we're still not alone. What's neat about them is they're smart, and they're smart enough to make sure that we don't know about them. So for every one coyote that, you know, hits the headlines and, oh my God, there's a coyote in Kirkland and there's a coyote in Beaconsfield, there's probably another five you don't know about um, because they're avoiding us and they're, they don't want to be anywhere near us. As urbanization destroys habitat, the clever, adaptable animals that can survive in what's left come to form a significant part of urban biodiversity. They tend to kind of gravitate towards this new uh, opportunity. Uh, and so they're, they're moving out from, well, they're moving out from the shadows or also they're being displaced themselves uh, and just making it work. They're just making do. So adaptability is part of the game too. To create spaces for species that aren't as adaptable, the city is planning large parks, like the Park of the West Island, and conducts monitoring and management of ecosystems in existing parks. It's also set a target to protect 10% of the land on the island, although the David Suzuki Foundation says that this will not be enough to fully protect biodiversity. Meanwhile, the runaway success of some species creates its own problems. So some animals that may have been living in areas that have been since inhabited by humans, 
you know, some some have thrived, like raccoons. Raccoons are again much like the coyote, being uh, encouraged to to be around humans because of food, because of uh, animal waste, food, all kinds of stuff, gardens, um, and in in turn, that's having an impact on turtle populations because humans tend to sprawl towards uh, water. So we, we follow the lakes, we follow the beautiful views, we follow the ravines, uh, and who's nesting there secretly, unbeknownst to the rest of us, is turtles. Well, as the raccoons follow us, conveniently, they're finding these nests and eating the eggs that up until now had been doing rather well. So we're seeing a decline in turtle population and soon enough that, well, it already is a major problem, but it's gonna become more evident to us because it's a chain reaction and something else is going to lead to it. So it's all about the, the ones that can thrive and find opportunity like the raccoon, like the coyote, like the fox um, that, that are just taking advantage of whatever shift has occurred because of our sprawl. The increased presence of generalist species like raccoons, coyotes, and foxes, which can live and find food in degraded habitat, are one sign of the reshuffling of the biological deck that's happening in cities like Montreal. Invasive species, the greatest threat to biodiversity after habitat loss, are another. Let's say this coyote, as it runs north on the railway tracks, passes an ash tree the tree isn't looking so hot. Its canopy is sparse and turning yellow. Right now, many of us are noticing that around the city, there's a lot of trees that are standing dead, and that's because of a newly invaded um, exotic species. This is Sylvia Wood, lead in research and development at eco to herb Which is a small consulting firm here in Montreal that really focuses on helping clients to uh, better manage their landscapes for biodiversity and connectivity. So the emerald ash borer arrived in Montreal a number of years ago, and it's an exotic species from Asia that attacks all species of our ash. And so we have about 22 different species uh, locally that thrive, and it's going to unfortunately probably kill most of them on the island. And that represents a pretty large loss of canopy because we have a large number of ash in our inventories. Ash trees were planted in huge numbers in Montreal decades ago because they do well in urban areas. They now make up roughly 20% of all street trees in the city. To fight the ash borer, the city is planning to cut down 40,000 ash trees, in addition to other measures. Even with those losses, Montreal is now aiming to increase its tree canopy by 5% by 2025. And part of that, Wood says, involves making it more diverse than it was in the past. I think the emerald ash borer has really brought to light um, how vulnerable our canopy can be, because we know that there are other diseases that are going to come in the future. So, you know, I think there's an active reflection about how do we best plan this going forward? We know that we need to replant all the ash that we've lost. And we also know we want to improve the amount of tree cover. But how do we do that in a way that's going to be uh, resilient to the types of pressures that those canopies are going to be under um, in 20 or 50 years from now? Because they're not the same ones that we have today. And that's, you know, one of the challenges with ecosystems is that, you know, they take many years to mature and they persist um, for decades or centuries. And so what we plant today, we have to make sure that it's also suitable for the type of world that it's going to be inhabiting in a few decades from now in terms of climate and um, other stressors. This is important because ecosystems that are low in biodiversity are vulnerable to stresses, of which the ash borer is one, but will not be the last. And the resulting loss of biodiversity will not be felt equally. Let's go back to Ganawage, 
where a project is now underway to restore some of the water access lost with the imposition of the St. Lawrence Seaway and to create more wetland habitat. But the community is facing other challenges, including the loss of its ash trees, which Kalia Marquis says will be particularly hard. So we have a program inoculate a certain number of trees in our community for the, the length of the infestation. And we had a program, we have a program where we're harvesting um, seeds as they're coming up. Um, the idea is really to preserve those seeds so that once the emerald ash borer has run its course and it's no longer a threat in this area, hopefully we can replant. Black ash trees especially are, um, are vital to our basket making, to, to a lot of our traditional activities. So it's really um, a tragedy, I think, at, at a larger proportion than it might be to other communities, you know? So apart from the, the hard science of, you know, uh, changes to water tables or uh, differences, um, you know, whatever in, in rainfall or all the things that we know are going to happen from, from climate change, um, it's, I think for us, um, it has kind of a deeper implication for us and how does that translate into how we uh, respect our traditional responsibilities when some of the plants that we rely on or some of the seasonal changes that we use as cues to um, to guide us in our cycle of ceremonies, what happens when those things are threatened or gone? So much of the thinking that we, we got from people in the community was we need to have a better understanding of our own traditions and our own language and our own processes to allow us to appreciate these natural processes and to support them to flourish, which wasn't immediate, you know, it wasn't necessarily on my horizon as the top action. But um, the more people said it, the more common, I mean, the more I realized it was a, a common view in the community that that people really made the association and the connection between language, culture, and caring for the environment. And it is true, if you look at our cycle of ceremonies, if you look at most the words that come before else, it's all looking at the relationships that we have, the relationships that exist between different plants, animals, birds, roots, everything, um, and acknowledging those and giving thanks for them. Um, so for me, I find that that's the, the more unique uh, result, I guess, of our climate change strategy was to make sure that we support our tradition so that we can support the environment around us as well. And I feel like if you have a good understanding of what's going on, then you must necessarily have a good understanding of how to help, right? So um, that's where we are. For biodiversity, the size and quality of habitats are key. But so are the connections between them. So connectivity is important that animals can access all the resources that they need to complete their life cycles. 
And all those things usually don't happen just in one location, but in several locations. And all these locations need to be accessible to them. More recently, uh, researchers have become aware of shifts in the ranges, distribution ranges of animals in response to climate change. And since climate is warming so quickly now, these distances that they have to shift per decade are um, significant kilometers and kilometers per decade that they need to shift and if they cannot move quickly enough they won't be able to adapt to the new conditions due to a warming climate. The climate crisis and migration of animals and of people. That's next time on Zone Rouge. This episode was produced by me, Maura Donovan, with production help from Zoe Bailey Stetson. Until next time.